It's good to be back. Um, not that some of you felt that I was ever away because I was here those two Sundays. Um, it is good to have Alexandra Archer back. Welcome back from her mission trip in Australia. And she will be giving her report next week. So I encourage you to be here next week to hear Alexandra's report of what went on in Australia. She came back. She would have probably wanted to stay in Australia a bit longer, but she had to come back because Hadassah Jane's birthday is today. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we cooked that up between us. <laughs> All right. Turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to, verse, to chapter 5, verse 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to chapter 5, verse 11. We continue in our study of our affirmations of faith. Now, when I was serving downtown at Jarvis Street Baptist Church, a couple of university students attended the church, and I was a little surprised that they stuck around because Jarvis was a very traditional church, and uh, they were young people. <laughs> so I asked them, well, why are you at Jarvis? And they said, well, basically we came because you were one of the few downtown churches that actually had a statement of faith on your website, and we appreciated your authenticity and your honesty about who you are. It gave them a sense of the church's identity and of the church's commitment to the gospel. And that's really the intent of our affirmation of faith. Our affirmation of faith is an open hand stretched out in friendship. We're describing who we are and what we believe in order to reassure people that they are welcome to worship God alongside us, and better yet, to flourish in community with us. Now, some of you might say, well, that's well and good, but some people might not like our affirmation of faith. That's all right. See, in that case, our affirmation of faith is a conversation starter. We're saying all of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. That's the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. And this particular subject, our affirmation on future things, is one of those sticky things or tricky subjects that invite us into conversation so that we would all grow and mature. So here's our statement. In hope, we believe that Jesus Christ will return personally, bodily, and gloriously, just as he promised and his apostles affirmed. In the end, Christ will raise from the dead all who have ever lived, and he will declare God's perfect judgment concerning every person. Those who have been saved will live eternally in the perfect, renewed creation. And those who have been unrepentant will exist eternally in the conscious punishment of hell. 
Now, you will note that our affirmation does not demand that you be amil, pre-mill, or post-mill. And some of the kids might be thinking, huh? What's amil, pre-mill, post-mill? All right, that's where you use the hey RJ form. <laughs> and tell me if you want me to talk to you about it at some point. Um, and I'll tell you a secret, kids. Your parents are also allowed to use it. <laughs> so as Mary um, announced, we will have a Q&A session over lunch next week after the service. So we can talk about this particular issue, among other things. But for now, kids, if you're wondering what pre-mill, amil, or post-mill is, we're going to use this description from uh, a scholar, a writer named James Grant Jr. Premillennialists believe that Jesus will come back before the thousand-year reign described in Revelation 20. Once Jesus returns, he will usher in the millennium. Amillennialists believe that the thousand-year reign is a symbolic number pointing towards Christ's reign from heaven now. So the church age is the millennium, and when Christ returns, he will bring about the new heaven and the new earth. Postmillennialists believe Jesus Christ will come back after the thousand-year reign. They also see that period of time as a symbolic number pointing toward a future day when the gospel will bring about an age of peace and prosperity on this earth before Jesus returns. So kids, you don't have to worry about those. Those are important, but they are not critical. Our affirmation emphasizes what matters most and which you should remember. Jesus is coming again, personally, bodily, and gloriously. And when he comes, he will judge both the living and the dead. And it's important to be ready. And that's what this text emphasizes. So let's read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to chapter 5, verse 11. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them excuse me, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. 
You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Now, in this passage, Paul is addressing questions from the Thessalonian believers about the status of believers who have already died. And he's not just addressing it to satisfy their curiosity. He is addressing their question in order to encourage them to stay faithful in the face of hardship. You notice how in verse 18, he closes by saying, therefore encourage one another. And then verse, chapter 5, verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up. The main point that Paul is making is that the gospel assures us that no matter what we might suffer in the present, we will prevail in the end. And not because of anything we have accomplished, and not because of any strength or ability we have, but because of what Jesus accomplished by his death and resurrection. Now in chapter 4, verse 13 to verse 18, Paul is saying that the resurrection of Jesus gives us unshakable hope as we face the grim reality of death. We recognize that Christ has triumphed by his death and resurrection. But as the writer of Hebrews says, we do not now see that victory. People still die. Christians still die. Christians still suffer. The world is still a mess. What gives us hope is the fact that Jesus has risen again and we will rise with him. And an example of that challenge to our faith is the death of fellow believers. So Paul says in verse 13, we grieve, but not like the rest of mankind who have no hope. And we saw that, didn't we? earlier this month, or earlier in June, when Kathleen Rasmussen faced her death and we mourned her passing. She could face her death with confidence, with courage, because Christ died and rose again for her. And that was the same hope we had as we mourned over her death. And the same situation needed to happen for the Thessalonians. The believer, there were believers in Thessalonica who had died. And those who were still alive were actually afraid that dying before Jesus returned would put those who had died at a disadvantage. That's why Paul says in verse 15, According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
They were saying, well, Paul, if they died before Jesus returns, maybe they get less rewards. But Paul is reassuring them, no, 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 no. Don't worry about it. Death will not change your standing with God. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees they will rise again when Christ returns. That's verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Our hope is grounded on a historical reality. The fact that Jesus died and rose again gives us hope in the face of death. And then Paul moves on in verse 16 to describe the return of Christ in terms of a royal visit. So think of Queen Elizabeth visiting Canada, only far more awesome. It will be visible, it will be public, and it will be glorious. It will be a revelation of God the Son in His majesty. Notice verse 16. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Imagine those three descriptors with a loud command that everybody could hear, with the voice of the archangel, so loud everybody will hear, and with the trumpet call of God. If you've ever listened to a bugle in the morning, waking you up, imagine that 50 times louder. See, that's the revelation of God in majesty. Think back to the transfiguration of Jesus in the Gospels. When Peter and John and James could not look at the glory of the Son, S-O-N, Jesus. That's what's going to happen. Jesus is coming, and you can't miss it. And you see, in that culture, the custom of the day was for the leading citizens of the city to come out and welcome the king with great fanfare. So they'd be outside the city gates waiting for the king, and they will accompany him coming in. And Peter, uh, Paul is saying that when Jesus returns, those who have died in Jesus Christ, those who are believers who have died, they will rise first. Look at verse 16. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So he's saying, no, no, no don't worry. Those who have died beforehand are not disadvantaged. They're actually going to be at the head of the procession in the place of honor, welcoming Jesus. They will rise with glorious bodies, and we who are alive will be changed. Bodies that no longer need glasses, right, Ainsley? <laughs> bodies that no longer suffer from high cholesterol or diabetes. Bodies that will no longer decay. Bodies, better yet, that will be fit to stand before the glorious King of kings and Lord of lords and not be consumed. Because notice the best and most important part of what, G what Paul is saying. Verse 17. 
And so we will be with the Lord forever. See, that is the glorious hope that is guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what we look forward to. It's more than the golden streets. It's more than the glorious body. It is the fact that we will be forever with the Lord in whose presence is fullness of joy. See, this text is not a text for speculation or quarreling about words. Paul wrote this in order to comfort and encourage us when faced with the grim reality of death. It is a text that allows us to be realistic about the pain of loss. That's why Paul says, we grieve, but not like the rest of mankind. Because as we grieve over the pain of loss, we have hope that death is not the end of the story. And our mourning is an opportunity to demonstrate the hope that the gospel provides. It gives us the hope not only of seeing each other again, but more importantly, of being with God forever. And it is that hope that should make us cry out with the Apostle Paul, Maranatha, O Lord, come. And the struggles you and I face from day to day, those painful events, those disappointments that we go through are meant to make us long for that great day when God will come, when Christ will come and wipe away all tears from our eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying for all the former things have passed away because he has made all things new. That, that, that's the hope that this life should make us long for because it is a sure and certain hope grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. And if that's the case, then the return of Jesus should shape our daily life. See, life today with all of its horrors and hardship should cause us to live in light of eternity. And that's why I had us read Psalm 73. If you would be so kind as to turn there, Psalm 73. Asaph confesses that he was bitter and envious because he was focused on the present. Imagine a, worship, a song leader singing this and saying, this is me. I was miserable. I wanted to leave the faith because, verse 3, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he saw himself driving his beat-up van and having all sorts of problems. And so he says, verse 13, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment for him. And then God restored him. 
as he worshiped in the temple and he recovered the perspective of eternity. Look at verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. It's not about your best life now. It's about eternity. Verse 18, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Then he realized, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And here's the eternal perspective. And afterward, you will take me into glory. And so he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, that's the perspective of eternity. Paul Tripp points out in his book, Do You Believe? Eternity confronts us with the fact that the ultimate in personal happiness, joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction will never be found in the created world of people and things. Eternity invites us to understand that the highest of human pleasures are found in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he is at the center, when he is my reason for everything, and I am living in complete surrender to him, then I will know unfettered joy and contentment of heart. See, that's the perspective we need to maintain in this life. Because that eternal perspective is what will enable us to be always about our Father's business so that we're always ready for Christ's return. That brings us to chapter 5. At my former church, Joao would join the ladies on the women's retreat and they'd go away for a night because that's all that the husbands could stand. <laughs> but whenever Joel, when, when I knew, you know, I had a general idea when Joel would come, but I would call her to make sure I knew when she was coming, you know. Are, are you on your way yet? Because you know why, right? I need to clean up the house with the boys. <laughs> and see, that's how we tend to want to know about the return of Jesus. In the back of our minds, we want to know when Jesus is coming so we know when, to, when we would start cleaning our act so that we don't get caught fooling around. But you see, Paul is saying, no, 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 that's not how it's supposed to be. The whole point of Jesus coming suddenly and unexpectedly is so that we would always be watching we watch for his coming by fulfilling his purposes in the world. And that's why Paul uses two images here. Verse 2, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. No thief tells you when he's coming, right? And then there's labor pains in verse 3. 
While people are saying peace and safety, discretion will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. It's sudden, it's unexpected. So with all due respect to the claims of prophetic teachers who would set dates for the return of Jesus, please don't claim to know more than Jesus did. We cannot know when Jesus is coming. And God designed it that way so that we would live in perpetual expectancy of Jesus coming. So that we would live to fulfill his purposes day by day by day. That's how you're going to be ready. Because one thing is sure. You cannot know when Jesus is coming, but you cannot escape his return. That's the imagery of labor pains on a pregnant woman. You notice Paul follows, they will not escape. And it is a real warning to those who refuse to bow to the Lordship of Christ. We all will face this holy, righteous judge who we were reminded last week is spectacularly wrathful because of our sin, because of our rebellion. You see, the Thessalonians were rather concerned because the day of the Lord, they understood, is a time of judgment. And because we have offended the infinitely glorious God, then the punishment has to fit the crime. An offense against the infinitely glorious God demands infinitely horrible punishment. Eternal conscious torment. And I know in the past, this text has been used to hammer people into being good. Because God's got to get you. Well, that's not what Paul is saying. The motivation for doing what's right and pleasing to God isn't the fear of getting judged. It is the hope of glory. Notice, look at verse 9 and 10. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. See, our motivation is not the fear of punishment. It is the hope of glory. Because through faith in Christ, we have been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. We are prepared for the coming judgment. That's why it says in verse 5 and 6, You are all children of light and children of the day. Our salvation through faith in Christ has brought about a radical change of status. We no longer belong to the darkness of sin. We belong to God who is righteous. We are people of the new creation. And so what Paul is saying is we need to live up to our status. Because our life together is meant to be a signpost of the age to come. We're not afraid of the coming judgment. Jesus is our righteousness. His sacrificial death on our behalf has forever satisfied God's wrath. His righteousness is credited to us. And so the day of the Lord is something to look forward to because it is a time of vindication. 
not judgment. Because when we stand before Christ, we stand for, before the judge who is our righteousness. And so when we stand before him, we will actually not, will receive not judgment, but reward. And the best part of it is this. It's not a reward that we will have earned. Because none of our best efforts can earn a reward. It is a reward that is guaranteed by the righteousness of Jesus. And so that day of judgment will be a day of glory and rejoicing and gratitude. Because we will be rejoicing in a gift. A gift from God. And we will know most fully the greatness and graciousness of our Savior. The fact that we have something guaranteed doesn't mean that we can be complacent. See, a guy who's just gotten engaged doesn't start ignoring his fiancée, does he? Or he better not, right, boys? <laughs> he actually puts more effort into the relationship. Because he is looking forward to spending the rest of his life with her. And by the same token, our status as children of the day and children of light demands that we exert every effort to please our Savior. See, hope is not complacent. Hope is active. That's why Paul tells us to stay awake and be sober because he recognizes it's all too easy to get comfortable and to forget that we're here to serve the purposes of God and not our purposes. Greg Beale points out that to be drunk spiritually is to imbibe too much of the world's way of looking at things and not enough of the way God views reality. And the sad fact of it is that we're rarely aware that we are drunk, are we? Yeah, some of you are saying, yeah, not by experience. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this, though. Examine your bank account, your credit card statement. Examine what you've been spending it on. Look at your day calendars, your calendars, when you get home, not now. Examine your calendars. See how you've spent your time this year. Have you been living in light of Jesus' return? Or have you been focused on getting your best life now? See, we live in a world that seeks to lull us into complacency with promises of peace and security. Jean Green, in the Pillar New Testament commentary, says... In an age of comfort and materialism, some Christians have left, let any thought of a final consummation and judgment become like so many dusty, unread books on the shelf. Concerns about their present well-being and prosperity drown out any biblical call to be mindful of the future. And some of you might say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of the future for my retirement. Yeah, please, we're going beyond retirement. <laughs> 
See, Paul tells us in verse 8 to put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. To remind you and me that we are soldiers belonging to God, living in hostile territory. We are to be on wartime footing. We are to be about our master's business. We need not be afraid because Jesus has already won the victory. But we are responsible to live out our faith, constantly living to please him, relying on his grace to continue to be faithful. So think of your workplaces. In your workplace, it is your privilege as a child of God, a member of the new creation, to be a co-creator. To exercise your creativity at your work. To be a cultivator of the good. To be a collaborator, reflecting the image of God for his glory. So that whatever work you're doing, you are serving Christ through your work with a vision of pointing people to the new creation that God is bringing about. See, that's what work is about. It's not about the salary, the promotion. It's about the privilege of reflecting the image of God as a member of the new creation, showing people the beauty that will come about when Christ returns. And again, we do this not out of fear, but out of gratitude. Because God has rescued us from the wrath that we deserve and has given us the hope of being in his presence forever. Again, verse 10, he died for us that, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. See, Christ holds out to us life with him. In whose presence is fullness of joy. And Jesus died so that we might have this hope. And that we might live in light of this hope. Living in expectation of Jesus' return. Giving priority to the mission he has given us. And we do it, thankfully, not individualistically. But in community. Notice verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you're doing. See, each of us is responsible for the other and for the whole as we build each other up mutually. Because let's face it, we all get distracted, we all get tired and discouraged. That means we all need the love and encouragement of our brethren, pointing us to Christ, who gives us the hope of eternal life in his presence. So let's seek to strengthen one another and help each other grow. That's why we're making a push for the small groups. We want to care for one another in love by helping each other become more like Jesus and by picking each other up as we face the challenges, the hardships that following Jesus will bring. 
After all, we are in hostile territory. And Christ's invitation is to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. So suffering is going to be involved. But we persevere in hope, knowing, as Paul says, that God has appointed us to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so no matter what we might lose for the sake of Christ, doesn't really compare to the glory of being with him forever, does it? And yes, I know, all of us are guilty. None of us have measured up to the standard of watchfulness and focus that Paul is talking about here. But let us take heart. Let us go back to the cross. Let us remember this truth. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that despite our laxity, our carelessness, our unfaithfulness, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live together with him. Let Christ's grace Let the hope he has promised and secured for us move us to live no longer for ourselves, but for him who for us died and rose again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in the midst of a broken world filled with turmoil, uncertainty, pain, filled with unspeakable horrors that we hear about day after day, you shine a light in the darkness. You remind us that there is a day coming when all that is evil will become untrue. Because Christ is returning, he will make all things new. Father, we pray, orient our hearts to Christ. Orient our hearts to long for his return so that we may look at the world around us with hope, with compassion, with courage born of that hope, so that as your people, we might live out this gospel truth, and that we may point others to him who alone gives true eternal hope. This we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Let us pray. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.